0: Mind, Crime, Liberty Show, with me, Swithin Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we're joined by Terminal Philosophy to discuss the Alex Jones and Graham Hancock theory of the past. So Tim, what is the Alex Jones and Graham Hancock theory of the past?
1: So today we're joined with Terminal Philosophy for a third time. We're doing, in a way, the same iteration of three different topics, the same topic. The first topic was on taboo topics. We talked about Israel. We talked about certain theories of scientism. We talked about other things. The second edition was the blind spots of historians. And two popular thinkers who bring these ideas together are probably Graham Hancock and Alex Jones. Um I mean I they both get accused of the C word, which is conspiracy uh conspiracy theory. And I think on a functional taxonomy, um, they both have a lot of similar features that they both they both represent popular figures, best selling authors. They are both best-selling authors. If you look at popular books, um, well, Jones is not an author. Uh, Hancock is an author. Um, um, they're well, they're well-read, and they're both very nice people too, uh, from all the reports of people around them. Um, um, and they're both popularized by Joe Rogan, um, so they're both sort of pub- public conspiracy. They get the the conspiracy. Uh, now, Jones, is, of course, have two different topics. Jones works with the present subplots of the U.S. government. MK Ultra, Vietnam, 9-11, and of course, Hancock is a much more distant past. But, you know, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about them together as a phenomena. Um, I think they're interesting because they sort of form a corrective, at minimum, to the mainstream narrative here. Uh, You know, if I had a punishment for the Branch Covidians that would be enacted in the future, I would say the only only way you could... uh, tell the history as on our previous episode we talked about the new york times history problem like that like in college you have databases they only consist of like new york times how could you tell a history with just using new york times well my punishment would be that you could only tell the history of the last two years with using infowars.com i think that would be an interesting history of the past two years um, um if you can only use that as your source material um so a lot of the attacks to them are character logical or ad hominem in nature. So, terminal philosophy in broad terms, what do you think the role of uh, people like Alex Jones and Graham Hancock are in the broader society and the broader narrative? In a way, they're sort of like institutions into themselves. Uh, they have public, they get accused of being profit hungry grifters, just trying to make a buck. We did an episode on grifting. Like, what do you think is the sort of role? Um, should we take, should we? I mean I'm I'd like to consider myself self-aware um but you know I don't believe every word they say but I think they're number one entertaining and number two they they get to a lot of truths uh I think you know the on the ancient questions there are some questions that mainstream ancient historians just seem unwilling to even ask like you know this building looks really complicated you're saying you're using straw tools to build it that seems that seems weird how can that be done no one today could even build it um, just simple questions like those uh, to me are really interesting and it those it, it, sort of childlike mentality which I in this in this is in a good way uh, of curiosity what did what you broad in broad terms your opinion on them and thanks for having it on terminal
2: right well um, thank you again for having me on your podcast uh, this topic brings in I would say all sorts of interesting questions about academic bias uh, entertainment uh, legitimate or illegitimate forms of research uh you know things like cult of personality of entertainment figures and the ways in which studies are funded and ultimately made to be biased uh so on and so forth so i think um in the case of whether or not hancock uh and jones are um something of like whether or not they are legitimate theorists or whether they're entertainers, I think um, you know when I think of a theorist, I think of someone who's you know trained at a at a school or at a, an academy somewhere um, you know at a legitimate university, and they've been they've been put through um, classes about how to research things, primary sources, secondary sources, uh, how to cite things properly and compare. Uh, Their work and claims of the past or claims of the present to to other scholars and things like that. So in this sense, are they, quote unquote, legitimate theorists? Well, I would say no. However, that doesn't actually that doesn't necessarily delegitimize everything they have said or have put forth in their writings and their platforms. I think that you are right. You're definitely onto something when you stated that they are some sort of uh, that there's some sort of corrective function in relation to the government funded academies of the West and to the, you know, the newspapers of today and things like that for Hancock. Now I haven't read his books, but I did a bit of research, um, on his work and i watched several videos about him. For example, the, you know, the Joe Rogan podcast episode, or at least I, I, maybe he's been on twice or three times, but I did watch one episode. And of course I've, I've been watching Alex Jones for a while, um, if anything, for entertainment for several years. But I think when you take a survey of their work, um, you know, because it's easy to be overwhelmed by sort of the, the you know, the kind of the flashbang atmosphere of Alex Jones or the, the sort of um, the, the depth of Hancock's work. When you take a real big step back and you look at this, i think that both of them fit somewhere in between uh full-blown entertainment and something of you know an alternative to um you know the uh, the the academics of the west because while i don't necessarily you know despise uh you know, academia and things like that. I think we can all agree that academia has something of a cultural problem and something of a, uh, you know, a left wing bias problem. And unfortunately, you know, when this question was asked to Noam Chomsky about two years ago, and and this was just before COVID, when he was asked questions about uh, whether or not that uh, the academia has some sort of left wing bias well he basically flat out denied that it was that that was even a problem to begin with because he said that he had co-workers who were more right leaning and conservative and they had no problem in keeping their job and they had no problem getting tenure so what's the big deal so that was uh, fairly frustrating and you know at that point it's like okay someone maybe someone needs to put grandpa to bed but um Yes, in the case of uh in the case of of Jones and Hancock, uh yeah, are these are they like these, you know, do they wear $400 black turtlenecks and they're always in the, you know, university archives and they're just constantly doing research and they're worried about losing some sort of position and are they, you know, uh do they carry themselves like a writer from the New Yorker? Well, no, definitely not. Are they only pro wrestling figures that are just out for money? Well, No, not that either. I think they're somewhere in between. And, um, you know, in the case with Hancock, he he is interesting because, you know, while he's not an ancient aliens guy, at least not that I had come across, um, he does his central thesis is something of the following. And feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I think that it's, uh, you know, before the Sumerians and the ancient Egyptians, there wasn't he claims that there was some sort of. I, I believe something like a global-spanning ancient civilization, which um, spread, you know, mathematics and architecture and language and things like that to different places of the world, and that 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 would explain the pyramids of Giza and all sorts of uh, other archaeological phenomenon throughout the world. Now he is definitely. Um, he's not liked very well with the archaeologic the mainstream archaeological community because they claim he can't back any of his claims up with tangible evidence he thinks and then graham hancock thinks that the mainstream archaeology is too entrenched in certain dogmas to even ask certain questions um so yeah it's this interesting debate and uh you know the the only thing i would say to that is that um You should be able to at least um, look into these questions, you know, pre-Sumerian, pre-Egyptian civilizations. I think that's fine. Now, um, you know, it it is a bit of academia's fault that left open this gap of inquiry because basically after the 1950s, as I understand it, in the 20th century of archaeology, that is when I think there's this – this theory called Clovis first theory, which, you know, um, that is the, the I, I believe it's in reference to the migratory patterns of humans throughout uh, several millennia across Central Asia, across the Bering Strait, and then into North America. That didn't become more established and popular, I believe, until the 1940s or 50s. And then since then, that has been the, the most popular theory about how humans have uh migrated into the north and south american continents he believes that they came i I think that those populations became established by from like a seafaring people as opposed to the to the from the bering strait so um but yes now it's hard for me to comment on just how much evidence is really available for Graham Hancock, but because academia made only that, uh the Bering Strait theory or hypothesis popular and quietly, you know, well not quietly, they they really made that theory the most acceptable one to publish and write and research about. Well then they leave non academic sources who can end up being popular in the public, like Graham Hancock, to come forth. So I'm not saying it's completely their fault, but once they start gatekeeping, perhaps unnecessarily on certain subjects, then they're going to create these certain types of phenomena. And I'll finish up here soon, but I think this sort of same phenomenon also applies to Alex Jones. I think after the Walter Cronkite era of news, um, and I think Walter Cronkite might be a bit overrated himself, but – I think after that era of journalism, which was kind of more just, uh, it was a bit more boring. You know, it was more like uh, this what uh, <laughs> what Wright Ruminations and Todd Lewis so- sometimes refer to as uh, 1970s public access television, where things are just a bit more ana- analytical and more dry and longer. And you know, you remember William F. Buckley with his show, where um, you know the show might last. I don't know, half an hour, an hour. I don't even remember how long it was. But he'll bring on Marxist professors or libertarians or nationalists, or and, and then you know, it's this drawn-out discussion about uh, polit- you know political science and history and philosophy. Well, nowadays it's this pro-wrestling uh, one-upsmanship, and so when that becomes the dominant way of reporting the news well, then that's going to leave all sorts of uh, gaps and vacuums beyond that perimeter. And figures like Alex Jones will emerge. So, yeah, I would say those are my initial thoughts on those two individuals.
0: On um, Hancock, um, I think his use uh, is, at least in the popular domain, is to... Uh, increase uh, the awareness of how advanced relatively uh, of relatively ancient civilizations are. Um, him similar to, in some respects to an older guy, Eric van uh who's had, I think similar ideas, although uh, I think Danikkin was the alien guy. Um, but um, they they are interesting to to raise sort of how sort of technologically sophisticated these uh, relatively ancient civilizations are. Now it may well be the case that in um, the academic literature that's well known, but that's certainly not the the, the public uh, uh, the general sort of public perception of such ancient civilizations. So I, I do think it's an interesting corrective um, there. Um, I'm not entirely sure of Hancock's um, basis for this pre um, so sort of Sumerian civilization, um, but it would seem to be the case as we discussed as mentioned in Todd no, no, sorry, Todd Lewis on history, is that um, it seems to be de rigueur in the um, historical community these days to ignore written records as much as possible, because basically if you writ- wrote it down it's a lie, um, and so you must have hard physical evidence. It's almost like, um, it's kind of like positivism for history, it must be empirical, and by empirical we mean stuff that people haven't written down, but like natural things we can kind of observe. Um, and I think that may be one aspect with with, uh, with the archaeological uh, aspects. I mean, so for instance, um, Plato claims, that with respect to Atlantis, that he was told this by solon who was told it by the Egyptians. Now, of course, this could be false, um, but um, Plato seems to think it's true. Uh, well, whether it is or not is another question, but it's the mere fact that there's a general uh, disdain for written records. Also, as well, anything which points to early civilizations being pretty darn advanced is uh, sort of a priori ignored because it goes against the general evolutionary view of history. Uh, and by evolutionary, I mean, as in following biological evolution, are oh, we going from sort of like um, simple to complex? And so anything that's pretty early, which is pretty advanced, uh, is um, is something that we cannot consider to be true because it uh, contradicts the general sort of a, the hermeneutic of history. There we go. I can cop- I can trademark that. That that would seem to be uh, how that that works. Um, so I think Hancock in that respect is interesting. Uh, Jones now for all his bombast, if you actually listen to what he says, most of the things he references. Are historically verified events, uh, Operation Northwoods, MK Ultra, etc. Is like these these things happened. Um, I mean, I mean, Bohemian Grove. Does Bohemian Grove exist? Yes. Do they sacrifice things to an owl god? Yes. If you'd said this before he took his video camera, would you said he was insane? Yes. Is it true? Yes. They do that. Now whether his interpretation of what happens at Bohemian Grove is true is another question. Uh, and the general theory about the elites being involved with the occult back to the Babylonians, et cetera, is another question. Um, but a lot of Alex Jones, stuff, particularly his more of his historical stuff, seems to be pretty darn uh, accurate from what I can observe. Now, his more recent stuff, you can probably go, well, that's a bit like, so his, his his earlier work on 9-11, et cetera. Uh, you could go, well, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the time Jones is 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 a is a talk show host basically. He's a provocateur. That's where he gets um, listened to, um, and um, that's I think why he's the way he is. He, his mind does seem to be a scattergun. Uh, he's, he has an interesting interview with uh, Michael Malice, and Michael Malice just tries to keep him on the straight and narrow throughout. And Jones is trying to go everywhere, everywhere and anywhere. Um, but um, I think that Jones is generally an interesting and um, and he, he's, he's worth listening to. He's not, I'm saying not right in everything, but he isn't just this uh, airheaded uh, know nothing, uh, despite what uh, CNN and NBC, MSNBC might uh, claim. So those have been my overall uh, comments on uh, Jones and Hancock.
1: This, this interview is progressing as 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 the way i wanted i think there are sort of interesting backdoor ways in which alex jones and graham hancock uh, sometimes are are pounding away at the same mountain at just different uh sections just a very large mountain at just different sections um both of them as far as your comment about jones being a sort of talk show host he is i mean in that way he's he is scalar brained he's a guy there's a certain, there's an Alfred Hitchcock movie called the man who knew too much in a way Alex Jones has just been fed has probably just read too many different things I think there's a certain Stockholm syndrome where he's just sort of it's hard to exist if he knows certain things like you know he'll make he'll turn the frogs gay or something like that I mean That's not exactly true, from my understanding, but it's basically the case. So even the sort of more things that he gets ridiculed, there there are more or less. And um, terminal philosophy brought up the Noam Chomsky line, like you know, why is there a problem here? Um, You know, the problem doesn't even exist. I mean, I know David Brooks or somebody like that works at the New York Times or wherever, and he can he can fit in. Or so they bring up some millet toast, you know, conservative who says nothing of any interest or, or thing like that. Um, and I'll use that as evidence that people can get along. It's, it's, it, that is very, that, that is very, um, frustrating to say the least. Um, um, as far as, as far as the, uh, as far as the history, um, the history point here, I think this will have to go back to our second episode here on, um, well, actually both, both episodes, the taboo topic ones, uh, I don't think there's two thinkers here that sort of throw two thinkers who aren't outright considered bad guys because you get all these sort of word buzzwords white supremacist racist thrown at and on both accounts I don't think any of them really actually identify with that I mean for one thing Graham Hancock has a wife who's Jamaican I think or and I mean they might be black they might be considered white by she's, now she's anyway she's
0: Malaysian. She's moving. Okay,
1: well, well that's probably that's probably at this point that's you know multi-ethnic whitehood or whatever BS they're gonna say. But um um and as far as Jones, I've never you know, Douglas Lane, who runs Zero Books, this is like an old video, I cannot find it. But Doug Lane this is what Doug Lane of Zero Books, he's a Marxist, he said in like twenty eight or old video. He said that I basically agree with the core message of Alex Jones. You know, the government's out to get you, uh the government's in terrible things. That's rough. I'm paraphrasing much, but he basically said he agrees with it. And um, what's interesting is, and this is what I think is interesting, on a priori basis, if you read, if you read the Mises and Rothbard, and this Moldbug points that out, um, and Marx in a back doorway agrees in a way with it, but just have different boogeymen. Uh, if you read, you have it's a theory of central banks creating wars. And what's Graham Hancock's? Not what's Alex Jones's specialty? You know, excesses of U.S. government the the industrial the military industrial complex um, so I think there's a sort of very he's sort of like a as Moldbug points out he's sort of like a a very much watered down version of Rothbard I mean he's sort of like a pop version of that and as far as Hancock is concerned I think swithin I think it was Swithin who touched that about pro, or was it Terminal about being progress um, the fact that an the fact that a society that was 10,000 years ago exist with much with technology is probably one of the most heterodox ideas you could generate. Now, maybe it was, maybe the alien stuff is neither here nor there. It could just be an advanced civilization. Um, uh, but the fact that, like, there was with travel, that's very much contra the sort of progressive zeitgeist which dominates um, academia, which Chomsky himself is somewhat a part of um, to some extent. I mean, in a way, you could view Hancock as a conservative theorist of decline. Now that now he might not identify as that, um, but in a way, if you think that the certain societies were more advanced in the past, so that that would be my second comments here. Um, if you care to elaborate here, um, terminal, I uh, and anything you disagree with or agree with, or, then we can move on to some other questions.
2: Sure. Well, yeah, I think uh, both of your comments are are quite spot on in regards to both men. I I think um, I think. One thing to address, too, is that I don't think that these guys are just intentional grifters and that they don't actually uh, I don't believe that they don't actually are invested into their into their thesis or their earth or their craft. I really do believe that they believe what they put out into the world. And I think you can tell this by just the ways in which they express themselves Um, You know, the lengthy interview with uh, Joe Rogan that that Joe Rogan had with Graham Hancock, um, it's difficult for me to believe that these guys are all just like these Kevin Spacey types in House of Cards, and they're really just manipulating everybody, and they're just out there for money. I I don't, I I just don't, uh, I don't see that, you know, those people are certainly out there, but I don't think that that's the case for these guys, even if they're wrong about everything, I don't think that they're just out there for money. Um, I will say that you know, as Swithin said earlier, you know, for all the bombast and bluster and the uh, <laughs> uh for all the hyperbole that Jones can put out, I think that, um, in general, I mean, if anything, he's fairly well versed in U.S. 20th century political history. Um, his early radio career was pretty good, and by which I mean he there was a lot of discussion about uh, um, Things like you know, Vietnam and the Gulf of Tonkin incident, the U.S. Iran Contra, MK Ultra, and about a million other things. Um, you know, Jones would really talk about a lot of taboo subjects, and to my knowledge, it's like he's never said anything. I, I've never actually come across anything that he said that's just like openly, overtly racist either. He's been, you know accused of that here and there, but not heavily. And I, and I did look for, you know, Alex Jones, like, you know, actual overt racism. And then, you know, I found some articles, but it wasn't like this smoking gun thing. You know, I mean, I, you know, I found him criticizing Black Lives Matter and Antifa and, you know, things like that. And he thinks that, you know, Black Lives Matter are basically, you know, shock troops for the establishment. And, and I think he's actually right about that. I mean, you can't. I personally do, but. But that's not, I mean, that's not racist, you know, but of course, I think we would agree that, you know, what passes as racism today is so broad and so nebulous that it's, it's definitely lost its meaning. I mean, everyone's a Nazi, you know, I mean, if you're if you're a, if you're a willing staying stay at home mother, you're an Nazi or, you know, I mean, it, the, the, the definitions basically just been butchered and spread so thin that it, it just it casts too wide of a net and doesn't mean anything anymore. So um, but yes, uh, you know, and Jones, I would say, too, um, because he has talked about so many taboo subjects in 9-11 and things like that, that. You know, a lot of his followers. uh, You know, it's a pretty multiracial lot. I mean, it's he's yeah. To my to my understanding, he's never been this uh, like white nationalist guy. He's never come across that way. I mean, if anything, he's more of just like this anti-big government, uh, right leaning guy in general. And I think you know that he is he's much more relatable to average people than. Many of the elites and many, um, you know, academics and things like that. You know, obviously he's very extroverted, but you know, Alex Jones is the type of a guy that could probably walk into some dive bar somewhere in the United States and and just start sipping beers and you know you could just talk with these people and you know and he would end up laughing and everyone's slapping packs with each other. Whereas, I don't know, I don't I know that this isn't the case for all academics, but academics are typically very introverted and sometimes um hard to connect with and so uh or, you know, to his,
1: or, <laughs> i'll just interrupt here i'll give you an example or like a cnn host like don lemon or one of those characters or the cuomo guy i wouldn't see oh, them going
2: <laughs> exactly yeah exactly i mean jones can hold his own out in the public i, I think he you know i mean <laughs> I'll, I'll go as far to say this i mean jones has far more in common with you know just rural people of the world and, you know, the goat herders of Kazakhstan and any of these sanctimonious, condescending uh, CNN anchors do. So, so I, I think that, you know, that's something that goes to his credit. And, um, and that sort of kind of comes, you know, after you, after you sort of absorb Alex Jones for several hours, or maybe several months or years, you can tend to pick up on that he's this well-intentioned guy and that he just hates government corruption and um he is trying to be a legitimate voice against uh you know government overreach and things like that you know even even though he's ripping his shirt off sometimes and it's getting <laughs> and the atmosphere is just uh you know near circus like but you know i think he he also knows that he's also a brand too he's not just Another person out there with political opinions. He he himself is also a brand that has to be managed, and he knows that when people tune in to listen to Alex Jones, that they want to hear some screaming, and they and they want to you know pound their fist with him that you know this this damn U.S. government is just so out of control. So so yeah, those are just some more comments about Alex Jones. Um, you know now as far as uh you know Hancock, uh, I really do think that um. I think he definitely intends well, and I don't think that he's trying, uh, he's just out there for the money. Um, I will say that one interesting subject that Graham Hancock is sort of involved with, or at least that his work has been involved with over the years, and this is something that Todd Lewis and I have discussed in private, is that um, within archeology, span uh, carbon, carbon dating is an interesting subject because Carbon dating. Now, and I'm not even talking about the folks who criticize it that are like young Earth creationists or something like that. I'm actually talking about mainstream archaeologists. These are unfortunate. you know, some of these uh, um, some mainstream archaeologists have a lot of problems with uh, carbon dating because the results can can vary so widely that it's really hard to pin down certain things. Uh, for example. The Sphinx in ancient Egypt has often produced results that suggest that it might be much older than we had previously thought—something like 8,000 BC, or 6,000 BC, or 10,000 BC, you know, 5,800 BC. And I'm open to that possibility that it actually could be much older, and that could open up the possibilities for pre-Egyptian civilizations, um, you know, perhaps elsewhere in Africa perhaps on some other continent before the Egyptians. Um, However, by the time that you're starting to investigate the past in that deep amount of time, something like 10,000 BC, you know, material, hand tools, pottery, structures, the foundations of structures, they're just left to be slowly destroyed by nature. And it's just, you know, I think even Graham Hancock would admit, you know, even if he were right about 51% of his work, there is so little that's actually going to survive from that time, just because nature just, just, you know, this material just deteriorates over time.
1: And so, I'll i just interrupt a second time here, hope you don't sure. mind. But, and and the one of the second claims that he sort of popularized, this is where you brought the young Earth creation narrative, is uh the great flood a theory, which is the idea that it wasn't the sort of, I think the term is gradual change, but there was a sort of great cataclysm. Now, you know, anyone who talks about climate change, it's sort of funny. They don't really, for all that talk they talk about, but they don't think any, everything had to happen inch by inch in the past. There was no mega flood. So if you add in that, there goes all the buildings and papers and all the other artifacts that you'd look for. So I just, I thought that little interjection would be worthy
2: oh sure yeah that's yeah and that's a fair point point. and you know there are I, I think it's you know i think it's fine to state that there are cataclysmic events um throughout history and you know even i i remember taking an archaeology class um at my university and you know we read the textbook people of the earth by brian fagan it's a like a widely popular introduction into archaeology even the discussion about uh, about carbon dating in that book and another Brian Fagan book, I believe, I, I can't remember the title, um, basically talked about how you know it, it just gives you a date range, and then you look into the how wide the date ranges can be, and it's kind of flabbergasting because it, it's really hard to pin down, and there's there's all sorts of examples of archaeologists. Purposefully fudging the numbers on you know, on on radiocarbon dating so it fits the general academic historical timeline that we have established and by which I mean you know the Sumerians came just a bit before the Egyptians and then it was the Egyptians along with the Hittites and the Minoans and Mycenaeans and you know this all happened at about you know a, like the Sumerians got started around you know something like 5000 BC or you know 4,000 bc and then things proceeded from there so um yeah so radi- uh, radio carbon dating or carbon 14 dating i believe it's called is is just very it, it's just unfortunately at the moment unless we have some sort of breakthrough in scientific instrumentation it's just uh it, it's hard to call it an accurate reading of the past because uh i mean the the, the results vary too widely to paint a clear picture of the past. And I'm not saying it's not illegitimate either. I think it's actually really cool and really fascinating that we can do that with objects. I just think that, uh, you know, that within any object that you're dating, sometimes there's not enough material from the past to give yourself a a clear result of how old it is in the first place. Um, One thing I'll say, you know, uh, that might be contra Graham Hancock is that I guess that some of his work, I will say, I I would say that it it potentially runs the risk of um, taking credit away from some of these civilizations if they really did create it. Like, for example, I mean, it could it could, in fact, be that really the Egyptians did build the pyramids there and that we might, you know, We shouldn't try and rob the Egyptians of their of their historical contributions, if indeed they really did create them. Now, you know, to be fair too, I don't think Graham Hancock should just be this uh, this boogeyman of archaeology for going against that either. So, um, yeah, now um, I, I will say, too, that a lot of the times, you know, academics are very defensive about defending their work because they've spent, you know, it's they've spent a lifetime's worth of working on you know a certain line of work or they've studied ancient Egypt or, you know, the Assyrians or the Egyptian or you know, any civilization, take your pick. And they're they're going off of quote unquote the historical record, which is, you know, basically colloquially referring to the collection of archives throughout the West and throughout the world that paint a general historical picture. And then when someone like Graham Hancock comes along, you know, they start to get uh, pretty defensive and irritated by that. I will say, too, that, you know, it's, it's possible to be a complete jerk And be right about something. And you can also be a really, really nice guy and be totally full of crap. Now, I'm not suggesting that Graham Hancock is, but it's more about the substance of the claims rather than the personality of the people involved. But I think one thing that helps Graham Hancock's case is that he's at least... um, know he's almost like a a really cool and interesting and really nice uncle whereas some of these professors you know have chips on their shoulders about this or that and they're hard to connect with so maybe that does uh, academics a disservice by being um difficult or rigid people whereas you know alex jones and graham hancock they have these personalities that uh almost seem they almost want you to you know to be involved in their work or want you to consider these things in sort of a friendly sort of uh contemplative sort of way so that's just another thing i've observed about those two these two individuals and their relationship to their <laughs> their adversarial institutions either the media or mainstream archaeology um yeah i'll leave it at that
0: oh, one thing that with hancock um that, remind, that, that Hancock reminds me of. Um, now, I, I don't know academic history as well as no academic economics, but it would seem to me that um, one of the reasons why Hancock is uh, disregarded as much is because effectively he comes from a completely different, well not a different approach, his approach is very different. Um, is that His sort of methodology and his sort of uh, assumptions going in are wildly different from the academic consensus. Uh, I see him in a sense akin to, uh, well, <clears throat> maybe i go as far as Austrian economics, but uh, heterodox um, schools of economics who actually have um, uh, completely different ways of looking at it from, say, sort of standard Keynesianism or neoclassicism. And um, what I think it highlights is the need to be clear about uh, methodology um, was well, certainly the case in um, economics uh, at, at a sort of academic level, uh, methodology uh, is barely discussed in any meaningful way, just sort of assumed you just carry on and do, just do what economics, e- economists do, and you sort of practically do stuff, but trying to figure out, you know, uh, the general approach, you know, what is the right way to study the subject, is not something that's ever really discussed in any meaningful detail at all, um, my understanding is that's true as history as well. Um, now, I know there's, there's more sort of historiography, uh, it's more sort of self-conscious, um, but um, there are sort of ingrained ways of looking at the world, sort of like the simple to the complex, the uh, sort of uniformitarianism, sort of, uh, in sort of, uh, well, this, this, this is more referring to the flood stuff, which from, comes from uh, the geologist Liao, I think, the 19th century primarily um is that you know there are assumptions and ways of doing things that sort of like uh, just assumed and are uncontested and i think people like hancock uh are very good for um reassessing foundations of how we approach uh matters uh and i think academic work in history and other areas would be much better for if they were significantly more open about the assumptions and the method they are using rather than um, just assuming oh, this is, this is history. This is the way we do history. Cause I mean the way you do history, I mean like referencing and stuff that is just incredibly aimingly retentive to this day. Historic, I mean like in the 19th century, barely anybody did it. Oh, well, you know, it says here, you know, Xenophon said, or, uh, you know, Herodotus said, you, know, you could probably find it, but you didn't actually go down to go. Oh no, it was at this point of Herodotus's um, collected works on line 372. I mean, the, the way that sort of history is done is is hugely different. I wasn't missing history today is worse for that reason, but rather the method seems to have changed significantly. I mean, I mean Mises, for instance, Mises before Mises barely references uh, explicit. Well, he references people, but he doesn't give citations. Uh, you have to do a quite a lot of work to find his site for like the actual work and where he he's um, referring to because that just wasn't the standard of the time. I and mean, that was written in like nineteen forty nine. Um now which is wasn't historical work per se. It was talking about human action. But I think that's um I think that's the the major interest I think with Hancock. Oh, on uh, one thing with his wife. His wife his wife is Malaysian, but she's actually Tamil. So she's a sort of South Indian. So she, she's probably relative dark. Um on the Jones racism accusations, they're ridiculous. He's sort of like a bombastic classical liberal figure who is very sort of constitutionalist, and he's been true to that vein of form since I've known of his work in the early two thousands onwards. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what I uh, my, my comments on uh, my continuing comments on Jones and Hancock.
1: On our taboo on our taboo topic episode, one of my first responses to Terminal was, you know, can a society exist? without taboos? And the answer is probably not. Probably societies need certain amount of taboos. but but So which brings me to the question of, and I think these are two theorists, you're going to call them theorists figures, whatever you want to call them, um, who I think, Swithin's comment about people like, um, mirrors his sort of view on ec- academic economists, you know, Joan, uh, Hancock's the outsider. And the same way with media, Jones is sort of the outsider here running this sort of Dissident publication here, uh, talk radio show, sort of a lump and proletariat type thing. And one of the things I probably suffer from, which is either a feature or a bug, is my attention span. I like to, I like, I like a broad. I like to know a lot of things about a lot of different things, and and some topics I'm fairly, have a lot of depth in. Um, but but I would say that at minimum, if you want to know anything about the past, you should, you should, you know, I took an art history cl- class in college. You know, I did, I did all right in it. But then, you know, a year later, I, I saw this guy, Graham Hancock, and I did see him on the Joe Rogan. Then I went out and bought, bought his books um, um, and actually got me to go to Egypt. Now, I knew the mainstream stuff within reason. I don't know every detail. And then I had Graham Hancock. I think that's a fairly balanced approach to take. Um, that's much better to approach than just saying, oh, just believe whatever, you know, mainstream state universities, art history people say. I think that's a much, actually a much more classical liberal in the same way with the media, I mean that that's actually my take. And what's interesting, as far as Jones is concerned, is I think he's more aware of his role. At, I think Terminal this than uh, a lot of his critics like to point out. Um, um, he he knows he somewhat plays a character in a way, um, but I do think he believes it. Um, now maybe Jones, <laughs> the ultimate conspiracy Jones is part of the CIA, CIA himself. So that would be the ultimate, and if that then if that's the level of. Uh, that that's like the, the the ground floor level of uh conspiracizing but so my final question to both of you would be like what is the role in the future of people like jones and hancock i mean should we cheer them on there are there are I, i'm well aware there are charlatans or quacks out there who are just selling nonsense um i'm i'm well aware but it, it is funny if you investigate certain things they're not as silly as they may come out to be like even the flat earth you can like I figured this out. You can't actually fly a plane around the world because it's just a flat disc. I think the ancient Indian, ancient India as in Indian subcontinent, believed that um, it is sort of like a reputable model in a way. Um, but but what is the role of people like them? I mean, I, it might have been a I don't think it was a total reach to put them on the same topic, but um um. That organization sometimes is not my strongest suit here. But what is the role in the future you think should be for these people in maybe not in a deal society, but at least in our society in our current day here? Terminal?
2: Right. Well, I think the future of people like Jones and Hancock. I mean, I think uh, the future is probably bright for folks like for folks like them, only because um, what I stated earlier is that a modern academia, um I think actually rightly so, academia should gatekeep on on certain, you know on certain subjects that they should gatekeep against like outlandish theories that have no evidence whatsoever. And that's what archaeologists tend to accuse Graham Hancock of. I think that I mean I'll controversially say that I think that academia is okay to plant a flag or draw a line in the sand somewhere between what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. However, if they, if it's so rigid to the point of where they won't investigate any questions like pre-Egyptian or pre-Sumerian civilizations, then I actually think that academia is doing also itself a disservice by not even considering the question, which seems to be the state of things. So something of a compromise between the rigid state of modern archaeology and something of the more, um, you know, something like Graham Hancock, I think, is not uh, is not horrible. I, I I think that there have been earlier archaeologists in the in the first half of the 20th century who were entertaining certain theories that Graham Hancock I think uh, is sort of a fan of. I don't know i forget the name of the 1920s archaeologist who believed in atlantis and you know that atlantis was the origin point of all indo-european people and languages and things like that but he seems to sort of take some influence from that particular archaeologist i apologize for not remembering his name but um yeah so i think if academia wants to persist throughout the decades and the centuries as a legitimate place to become an educated person a classically educated person then i think that they there needs to be a some sort of effort in considering um these these unorthodox questions or unorthodox theories and and, and see if there's some sort of legitimacy there uh in the case of jones um i'll say that um well you know Modern media is such a I'll just say it's such a a bizarre freak show and such a a, it's it's in such a pro wrestling format. I mean, you know, um, without sounding too silly here, I mean, you know, what is the 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 formula of modern media and news? It's something of the following. It's like, okay, so we just watched a, a Mountain Dew commercial. And now we'll pan to Rachel Maddow and then she'll have a monologue for about five minutes and you get to watch her big Adam's apple bob up and down and then she'll bring on a guest who has the opposing viewpoint and then they'll interrupt each other for about two or three minutes and then she'll have a closing monologue and might she might tear up about something and then cut to a Doritos commercial I mean this is just not, (laughs) this is just not a format for absorbing political science. History, politics, current events, sociology, anything like that. that. That is just an insult to the intelligence of most of the viewers. Now, a more a format, say, like Joe Rogan or Alex Jones or uh, anybody, I mean, really, you can name anybody, Vosh, ContraPoints, Eric Stryker, <laughs> the whole circus, uh, the whole clown car, um, say whatever you want about any of those people what is more appealing about their format is that you get to hear a sustained and more lengthy uh, amount of time for these people to put their ideas out there. And it's not tied to any sort of corporate interests or money. Uh, yes, of course, there's claims, but that all these people, I mean, for example, like Caleb Maupin put out a book that says that, you know, BreadTube specifically like uh, ContraPoints and, and Vosh and other people like that are actually – you know, they, they might as well be U.S. assets because they are maintaining an anti-Marxist left wing, if you will. That's sort of the thesis of one of his books. And you can you can watch a great interview that Todd uh, had with him, uh, Todd Lewis, Praise of Folly. So but anyways, say what you want about those people. And, and again, but, you know, Joe Rogan, Alex Jones, et cetera, et cetera. But that format is much more interesting i think to the average person and you know joe rogan has something like i don't quote me on this i apologize if i'm wrong but it's something like a hundred million or maybe even 200 million listeners i don't know if those are regular listeners but he has something like a you know tens of millions of downloads a month so something's obviously going on here and you know if you if you ever watch the show breaking points with uh Uh, Crystal Ball and and Sagar, I forget his last name, Jetty or something like that. They've reported, I think, quite well on, and they've quite convincingly, that uh, mainstream media is just, it's never been lower in popularity and podcasts are more relatable to the average person. And so I think, uh, you know, Graham Hancock might have a harder time than Alex Jones because archaeology is a very specific field with a very specific set of existing physical evidence for certain past civilizations. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's made his 20 pieces of silver, and I think he'll, he'll, he'll have a good career. And I think there will be other people that come along in the non-academic archaeology like him in years to come. And then for Jones and others like him, I think the future is quite bright because the state of modern media is so awful and so poor and honestly so toxic that people are going to go off into the Internet and find individuals who kind of suit their own politics. Um, yeah, and thank you again for having me on the show. Uh, thank you for joining us.
0: Um, what i say about Hancock, as I mentioned before, I think uh, foundational issues of how we generally approach uh, historical matters of interest. I would agree with TP. I, I don't think uh, the, his, the, the academic department shouldn't say this is true and this is false and we shouldn't have any sort of uh, gatekeeping in certain respects. But I would encourage them to at least you know, have a public discussion with Graham Hancock or anybody who gets traction, you know, just be willing to go out and discuss things with them. Not necessarily in debate format, but in like a respectful sort of discussion, because I think debate formats to a large extent end up hamstringing the actual discussion. So you don't actually talk about that much.
2: Right. I, um, I totally agree. I totally
0: agree there. Um, They just uh, you just if you get them on and it's moderated and they're not going to be like deliberately interrupting each other all the time and I think one of the reasons they do that on tv is because they're there for like two minutes or three minutes um if you think Joe Rogan is right for instance I mean he's a respectful host and he asks good questions then you do feel like you're the, the guy's actually been interviewed rather than being talked over um so I do think that's a, a much uh better uh format uh so I would very much encourage um the, the Ivory Towers as it were to actually engage with these people um, because otherwise they will just get become more popular even if they're wrong. Uh, Alex Jones is is going to be good for just keep repeating things that are actually in the public domain and making people aware of them. Because he says, oh, go look it up, type it in, look, it's here, it's there. Because when he was on Joe Rogan, I can't remember if it was the last time before, they kept getting, oh, Joe Rogan's sort of servant, I can't remember what he's called, who's like fact-checking everything, and right Ryanair's like, yeah, it's there it's it's there he makes reference to in the documents it's in the document it's, the docu- it's there but this is the whole thing going back to my coronavirus all there's so much information it's been known since the beginning but people have just ignored it what do we know people great mor- uh, with great comorbidities in the 80s those who died we knew that in march 2020 we knew that vitamin d was a correlate of that but it was ignored it was completely sidelined no one to talk about it. It just couldn't be discussed at all. Alex Jones is good for bringing things up. This is there. We know it's true, but people just ignore it. And this is one thing Alex Jones, as I should say, is, look, these people, they're not conspiring, holding out this, keeping the information secret. It's out in the open. It's there. Look at it. What? The, the thing is, they've just done a great job of making people ignore it. And that's why, because Alex Jones is such a huge personality and can uh, grab attention, that is, I think, what he can do. Look, look, Operation Northwoods was a genuine plan. Why do you think, do you think somehow that the U.S. government is somehow much nicer to its population than it was going to be in the 1960s? I mean,
2: <sighs> <laughs> I, I totally agree. Yeah, I don't mean to interrupt again, but, yeah, you're you're right. A lot of the things that he does reference. I mean, Alex Jones, to my knowledge, I'll make this quick, but uh, and and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember in the earlier days of Alex Jones in earlier 2000s, like around 2004 or so, I listened to him here and there. He was one of the only guys, I think, in media that ever talked about uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident in Vietnam, you know, which happened decades earlier. But. You know, I I think if it weren't for Alex Jones, there would be far less public consciousness towards something like Gulf of Tonkin because he would just constantly beat away at it and like, hey, people look at this, this is crazy. And then, you know, uh, well, let's just see how crazy Alex Jones is. I mean, operation, or uh, yeah, the the Gulf of Tonkin incident was a total, this was a false flag operation. It was totally nuts and no one talks about it. It's really frustrating.
1: And that's and that's missing the biggest elephant of them all, which is the the guy with the initials J E of an island. I mean, this this is even people have like mainstream figures, relatively main, like Eric, slightly heterodox figures, like Eric Weinstein. It's like, wow, this guy has all these connections. WTF? Where did this guy come from? Did he hang himself? I mean, and he was talking about that for a while. So I even Joe Rogan would point that out. So I I think. That's another thing he's just good on. He just exists and it just sort of pisses off certain sectors of the uh, managerial class. So I, I think that future is bright. But, you know, if Swithin, had, I mean, that, I'm, it, that's it for my comments. But if you want to continue on Swithin, go ahead, go for it. Sorry for interrupting the interruption.
0: No, the interruption was good. And um, TP's comments is, is exactly right. You know, Gulf of Tonkin uh that i think is what alex jones is is for i mean as in the side with alex jones one thing keeps going on about which everyone keeps as again has been completely memory hold uh to finish the uh mass shooting in las vegas where somehow one guy got loads of uh ammunition into his room and started killing everybody uh when there's loads of cameras everywhere in las vegas uh, this is completely memory hold and now whether what the official uh, story is true is another question but it's at least weird that no one—it's be completely, completely memorable, even though it was a really huge event. Um, so that—that—that is—I um, know lots of people don't like Alex Jones, but uh, I find him entertaining, and, I, and if you do listen to him, he is—he is not stupid, and he—and he does raise uh, relevant and important stuff. Just have to thank TP for uh, joining us again. It's been a great discussion, and. Uh, If you've enjoyed this, please share and subscribe. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason, please contact us at mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com.